Hi, this is Tom Field, Vice President of Editorial with Information Security Media Group. I'm talking about the 2014 Faces of Fraud survey results. I'm talking with Daniel Ingevaldson. He's the CTO of Easy Solutions, sponsor of the survey. Dan, it's a pleasure to talk with you again. Thanks, Tom. Likewise. So we both have spent a ton of time with this survey. I've got to ask you up front, what surprises you most about the survey results? Uh, well, Tom, there, there was, there's probably two things that popped out at me. I mean, there was a lot of great data in here, a lot of great insight. Probably the, the, the first point that um, was surprising was the fact that the numbers of respondents at 70% that were affected by the target breach and the Sally Beauty and the Neiman Marcus breach, I actually felt that was kind of low. It seemed like nearly every single financial institution that we talked to was affected by the breach in, in, in some form or fashion. So uh, I was actually surprised to see that number at 70%, which is still an incredibly high number. I think the, the second piece, which was also interesting, was the fact that the, the general numbers around account takeover were relatively unchanged or really almost exactly unchanged from last year. And that was particularly interesting because so much focus has been put on account takeover with various technologies, various regulatory requirements, as well as a lot of vendors in the space working on solving that problem. I'm glad you brought up the retail breaches, Dan, because that was a huge theme. My question for you is where do you see the real pain that banking institutions are feeling from Target and even Marcus, Sally Beauty? Do you think it's inconvenience, the financial loss, or is it this accountability that they have for breaches they really can't control in the payment system? Yeah, I mean, the, the survey did, did a pretty good job breaking that up in, in a few of the questions, and, and I think really the answer depends on what size bank you're talking about. You know, the larger banks are obviously much better equipped to be able to handle these kind of events. Just any sort of crisis management, obviously, is something that a larger bank will have more capability to, to deal with. And that really goes down to the costs and the resources and the amount of time they have to focus on these things, as well as uh, certainly the bank setting aside larger amounts of money for a rainy day, if you will. The, the smaller banks are really a different story. We talked to numerous smaller institutions, which were really hit very, very hard. Uh, they got hit with the brunt of the cost. They got hit with the brunt of the time uh, and, and time wasted in really dealing with, with the events internally or the, or the events internally. And that goes from identifying accounts at risk, identifying accounts which have been compromised, as well as the, the massive reissue cost, which is certainly higher for smaller banks, which don't have the same volume as the large card issuers. There, there certainly is a spectrum of pain, but in this case, you know, if you if you take everything else on balance, the smaller banks are impacted uh, much more severely by these large retail credit card breaches. So I come away from the survey results and I say to myself, okay, the banks are really mad as hell about these retail breaches, but realistically, what can they do about this this trend? Well, yeah, that's really the the, the fifty thousand dollar question. You know, the payment system. If you look at it holistically, it's designed to very carefully balance security and convenience. There's been a lot said publicly in the trade press, really all around this issue, around how we have an antiquated payment system, which goes back to using MagStripe uh, cards and MagStripe readers for, for the vast majority of payments here in the U.S. The, the part of that that is, that is underreported is the payment system works really well from a convenience standpoint. A lot of the reasons why contactless payments and, and near-field communication or NFC chips in the back of phones and digital wallets haven't taken off is that credit cards are just really, really convenient. If everyone has one or many, uh, they're very easy to use. The system works pretty well, except for when it doesn't, except for when there's a large breach and, and these sort of things happen. So there's a lot of things we can do, but a lot of them are incremental steps. 
um, you know, obviously we should we should update our the entire uh, U.S. payment system over time, uh, but do so in a, you know in, from from a managed uh, point of view. Uh, there's no silver bullet. There's no one solution that which can solve this problem, and an EMV is, is only really one arrow in the quiver, if you will. It's only one of the techniques we can use to to cover some of the risks associated with with large retail breaches, but certainly not all of them. I'm glad you brought up EMV because we've heard so many acronyms in the, the wake of these breaches. We hear about EMV, we hear about PCI, we hear about encryption, tokenization. Dan, what would you say your vision is for the future of secure payments? Again, it comes back to convenience. You know, we could design a very, very secure payment system in the U.S., which would scale. It would it would provide a lot of different functionality to deal with lots of different um, uh, payment scenarios, whether it's card present or card not present. The problem is, is, is once you start to layer in additional security controls or additional factors for authentication, in some cases, the convenience factor goes down dramatically. So, you know, EMV is, is something which is which is very powerful at securing uh, the physical card not present situation or, or, or transaction, actually walking into a store with a card and authenticating that card to the point of sale device. Problem is, is, is EMV uh, does not protect against the exact scenario which happened at Target and, and reportedly several other retailers, and it doesn't touch the, the online side of things either, unless an additional second factor authentication is, is deployed. So things get very ugly and messy and complicated very, very quickly. I think one of the primary things which which can be done, but it will be it will be done at, at significant cost with a with a significant investment, is to enforce end-to-end encryption from the keypad. Uh, all the way through the issuing and acquiring networks. So to make sure that there's no clear text information, no clear text uh, credit card information or Stripe data, which is ever available to malware uh, in the case of, uh, of Target or other, other breaches. So the malware can never actually capture clear text information. So tokenization comes into that, encryption comes into that, using chip and pin or EMV technology comes into that, but there's lots of layered incremental technologies which which can make uh, the cost of, of perpetrating these large credit card heists much higher and make and make it much make it much more difficult or much more low probability that a large number of, of cards exist in one centralized place where they can be extracted and, and bought and sold like we saw with the major breaches. So shifting gears and talking about some of the other survey results, consistently year to year we see that the type of fraud that financial institutions face is not what they're predominantly prepared to face. So my question for you was, where do you see the fundamental disconnect here, and how do we need to address it? Well, it's a good question, and I, and I think the level of, of precision in, in, in my response is, is required here because we're getting into some semantics which definitely should be explored. We believe in our business is that this fraud is, is very, very cyclical. It's not that you know a, a fraud manager or a, or, or a risk manager is not perhaps prepared for a certain type of attack. You know, their, their job is to, is to cover all the bases all the time with scarce resources and scarce funds. It's really the, the, the kind of one of, the, one of the rules of the road when it comes to fraud management. And we often make the distinction between fraud management, so basically managing losses, and fraud risk management. The two are related, but they're very different in practice. Probably the best way to explain it is, is, is an actual, actual scenario within, within a bank or a financial institution. You know, if a bank is losing, you know, a million dollars a year uh, via credit card transactions or ACH or wire or another channel, they're endeavoring to manage fraud down through the through the programmatic application of lots of different policies and controls and technologies. So taking the million dollars and reducing that as low as possible. The other side of the coin is once you've done that, once you've reduced losses 
to appropriate level, which which the audit committee or, or executives within the organization can accept and the shareholders as well. Then you transition into fraud risk management, and that's where things get much more complicated. It's very easy to fund fraud programs when there's lots of fraud. It becomes much, much more challenging politically and realistically within an organization to fund those programs at the same level when fraud is low. So what fraudsters always do is they exploit this kind of rule of nature, this thing that always seems to happen, and they exploit weaknesses. They exploit gaps in visibility. They exploit temporary conditions to maximum effect in a lot of cases. So the most sophisticated organizations are the ones that understand the difference between fraud management and fraud risk management and maintain a level of vigilance, maintain a level of funding, and maintain the size of their programs no matter what the current fraud situation is and no matter how the wind blows. That's really what allows organizations to be more flexible. It allows them to respond more quickly and allows them to, to put up barriers to entry for, for bad guys for unforeseen attacks because they're, they're looking at it really in a, in a, from a totally different point of view. Dan, one of the other themes that we see, and you and I have talked about this before, is that consistently in these surveys, institutions say that their best means of detecting fraud is through their customers. That's how they hear about it first. And, and this year, that's the number one response. So question for you is, how can organizations improve their ability to spot and stop these incidents before they get the attention of the customer? That's another great question. Uh, it's something that's been the focus of the survey, I think, for I think for quite some time. And the way to answer the question first is to is to answer kind of a a previous question: Where do you want that number to be? You know, how much fraud do you want to control or detect yourself internally uh, before your customer you know serves as an early warning? And because there's lots of associated costs around that issue. We operate globally, so we deal with lots of different regulatory climates, lots of different political climates, lots of different uh, banking sectors which are which have different rules of liability and accountability on behalf of the financial institution and the actual retail banking user. And a lot of those things determine exactly how how reliant the organizations are on their end users. We certainly believe that the best technology out there to perform pattern recognition on an account uh, is the person holding that account. They know their activities. They know what, what's good or bad. Uh, they can look at a whole statement, glance past it, and they'll, and they'll see something uh, which is abnormal because they know all that, all that activity. So some level of, of customer-driven reporting is important, and I don't necessarily see that as a failure just in and of itself. I think when that becomes the most important component of an anti-fraud program or for actual monitoring of transactions, that's when you have problems. So, so certainly the lowest friction way to detect fraud uh, from a transactional standpoint, when money actually moves, is to do it with with real-time transaction monitoring behind the scenes. There's lots of technology out there that that does it. We do that as well as part of one of the services we we provide. But it's important to to merge that into the existing fraud program in the way that makes the most sense, Uh, the way that doesn't create friction, the way that doesn't create uh, customer inconvenience, um, while still maintaining a relationship with an end user when, when they are bought into the fraud control process. You can answer this question a bunch of different ways. Same thing's true for, for protection of, of, of your devices. If, if end users are completely divorced from the fraud which happens in their accounts, then fraud will inevitably go up. Uh, and that's one of the, one of the um, unfortunate side effects of having a, a, a very uh, consumer-friendly uh, liability regime, which we operate under in the U.S., when essentially when money leaves your account, if you report, it's no longer your problem. That really tends to, to at least influence how much end users are, are bought into the process of managing fraud um, on their own accounts. 
Earlier, Dan, you mentioned the account takeover and how the needle really hasn't moved very much there. One of the areas that struck me similarly was financial losses. We have more than three-quarters of our survey respondents saying that the financial losses have remained steady or they've increased. So Something's not working. In your opinion, where are detection and prevention systems failing the institutions? We always look at this as um, that fraud is like the, like the reservoir behind a dam. If there's a crack, if there's a weakness, if there's some kind of flaw, fraud will increase. And that can be that can be something as as simple as um, as getting malware on a machine and initiating some kind of transfer. It can be something you know much more complicated, like some kind of channel hopping attack, where the where the fraudsters will exploit uh, a lack of, of of visibility across channels. The the numbers that that make up uh, that 78% will will probably change every single year. We go through these situations when we see you know ebbs and flows of different techniques. We see you know we we hear anecdotally a lot of cases that some of, the, some of the largest dollar losses that affect uh, institutions are coming in via the contact center. They're coming in via, via the IVR, the, the, the actual voice response systems, uh, because a lot of the controls on the online channel have got better. It's become more difficult to move large, large sums of money uh, on the online channel. So what happens is, is the bad guys will use the online channel to, to recon the account, to find out the behaviors, to see how much money is there, then they'll do their homework and they'll and they'll find ways to answer the secret questions or out of wallet questions. Uh, then they'll call in and they'll answer all the questions asked of them and they'll wire out $100,000 to an account that's never actually been been seen before. Those kind of things are the ones that are, you know, almost the black swan events. And the bad guys know that, so when they institute those kind of complex, expensive attacks for them, they go after a big score. Uh, and we see that all the time. So one of the major things that that we constantly talk to our customers about is is we, we, we help them assess their confidence in, in full transactional visibility, understanding the kind of the full scope of the account, all the channels which can touch that account, and all the ways where, where money can move in and out. Um, and, and that's really a holy grail uh, sort of solution. It's one that we're always refining with our customers, one that we're always contributing to and working on. But it's a great goal to set because it'll, it allows you to have really, really more flexibility when, when the wind change, when, when the targets change, uh, when the attack vector changes as well. Dan, a related question for you. In terms of investments that organizations make in technology solutions, it's pretty clear they're investing in solutions that aren't effective against the evolving attacks. Where must the future investments be directed? And I don't think I'm going to say anything truly controversial here. I mean, we believe, of course, in, in, in multi-layer protection. It's, uh, it's an overused term. It's something which, uh, which everyone in information security and, of course, anti-fraud deals with every day, and it's a vocabulary that we're all very familiar with. To us, it's about building a truly flexible anti-fraud program. And, when I, and I say program specifically because I'm not talking about technology. I'm not talking about products. I'm not talking about services. I'm talking about the appropriate application of, of all of those things, of policies, procedures, uh, SLAs, requirements, technologies, everything uh, rolled up into one program, which is, which is sophisticated enough to be able to manage fraud losses down but provide flexibility when fraud losses are down to deal with the next thing. We always look at the world through the lens of, of the attack life cycle, the, the fraud life cycle. You know, to move money out of an account, uh, lots of things have to happen. You know, uh, there has to be some sort of campaign in a lot of cases to, to uh, acquire information about an account holder or to acquire credentials for them to log into to the online banking or mobile banking environment. 
uh, attacks are then launched to, to, to gain control of those accounts and bypass two-factor authentication in some cases. Uh, and then money has to be moved around or muled around within the bank to be able to, uh, to, to, to prepare for a transfer. And then, of course, in the, in the last stage, to be able to bypass any, any risk or context-based controls to, to move money out, to actually transfer money out. So I said a bunch of things. I think that, there, that there's that within, a, within a well-designed anti-fraud program, there are controls in place to, to get a swing at the pitch, if you will, for each one of those phases. So what we try to do and what we work with our customers to do is to, is to look at things that way, to try to figure out the best way and the most inexpensive way, which is really important, to, to break that chain, to break that cycle. So you reduce the number of, of events which make it all the way around, to make it to actually moving money out of the bank. It's really important to have a strong anti-fraud program as a foundation for a long-term point of view here, as opposed to simply reacting to the latest threat or the latest uh, you know, major, major buzzy press which hits for a new, a new Trojan or a new attack. Fundamentals, they are important and they, and they will remain important going forward. You mentioned multi-layered uh, defenses as an overused term. I'm going to give you another one, customer awareness comes up consistently in our surveys. In this one, the respondents say that their biggest challenge in fighting fraud is a lack of customer awareness. And yet recognizing that it's a problem, nearly three-quarters of the respondents say that their customer awareness programs are at best average or below. So what are institutions doing wrong here? They recognize the problem but don't seem to be able to address it. Well, I mean, customer awareness is is a bit of a controversial issue uh, in the industry now. You know, it's something which is which is mandated by the regulators. It's something that that everyone feels like they have to do. Uh, it's almost table stakes, and and banks will be dinged if they don't have uh, what what is seen as a as an industry standard customer awareness program. I think the problem is is by definition, customer awareness cannot stop fraud. So if you if you parse this out, it, it becomes it becomes more clear. You know, to, to educate someone about something, you have to have, to have an actual scenario. So you see this through the arc of all the, of all the stuff we've been dealing with in InfoSec and Antifraud for the last 15 years. Don't click on links which are sent to you by, by unsolicited uh, people. Don't actually respond to, uh, to, to unknown email addresses. You know, the thing is, though, is, is really in, in order to, <laughs> for, for fraud to be successful, the customer isn't educated against it. You know, there, there's 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 really kind of a, a fundamental disconnection between between I think the expectation around around customer awareness and and what it can actually do. So you know, without a time machine, a customer awareness programs by by itself will always fail. So so we we believe of course that it's a backstop to everything that we try to do, but it's never something that's going to get you ahead. Uh, it's never something that that that, that you can actually um, invest in to gain to gain additional returns ahead of the threat. It's something which is always going to be either if you're very, very good, you know, with the threat or, or, or kind of, uh, kind of in, in parallel with the threat, but almost always behind it. So I think really the, the crisis around customer awareness is, is really uh, being realistic about, about the expectations you have uh, or, or the expectations of the outcomes that you seek with, with deploying customer awareness. These are expensive programs. Uh, they're very visible, so, so, they're, so they're certainly talked about a lot. Um, but it, it's something that, that, we, that we see as really a minor portion or a minor component for a, for a truly comprehensive and effective anti-fraud program. Dan, before we wrap up, I want to talk with you about a couple of other topics that came up and maybe didn't have some of the impressive results that I expected, certainly. One of them is cross-channel fraud. I hear mm-hmm. a lot about the rise of cross-channel fraud, and you and I talk about it. The survey results didn't really show a distinguishable pattern there. 
What's your take on it? Is it a matter that the institutions are simply failing to follow the trail? There is some of that. It's obvious based on based on industry data, based on what we've seen internally, that banks um, oftentimes undercount fraud. Uh, they undercount precursors to fraud. They, they see when the money leaves, but it, sometimes it's difficult or sometimes even impossible to, to do a full end-to-end root cause analysis, to find the very first time that an initial action, kind of in the beginning cycles of that fraud cycle I spoke about a moment ago, uh, where, where those manifest. This is kind of a standard, not even, not even a fraud or a, or a security challenge, it's a standard IT challenge, uh, you know, putting all the threads together, um, understanding how fraud or how attacks manifest in the real world. Um, so, so certainly, this is this is one of the things which which banks are going to continue to invest in. It's a it's a job that's really never going to be done. You know, as additional channels are coming online, as as new technology is making it easier to bank when when transactions become more and more real time, this is something which is going to be obviously more and more important. It's an end state uh, which everyone is 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 going for, uh, but it's something that is very very difficult to perfect. Another topic, Dan, that didn't come up really strongly in the survey results is mobile banking. When it comes to mobile, what are your top fraud concerns, and how do they need to be addressed? Mobile's new. A lot of us have been using it for for a while, but from a, from a channel perspective, it's still still the new kid on the block. So the the biggest way that you can you can differentiate or you can you can you can tell that mobile's new is you look at the feature sets which are available. A lot of of major retail banks still don't allow the ability to create payees, for example, within, within the actual mobile banking experience. Additionally, it's very difficult to do, to do what I would call very effective multi-factor authentication in the mobile channel, uh, in the pure mobile channel, not just using mobile as a second factor in and of itself. Um, and, and, and also, you know, the, the stats to me weren't very surprising because mobile has not become a, a, a massive issue for fraud yet. But there's a lot of fraud risk, right? So back to the initial distinction between the two. Um, you know, banks aren't, aren't, aren't being taken to the cleaners in the mobile channel uh, directly, but it's a contributing factor. So something that we're watching very closely is the, is the increase in mobile malware. Uh, we're trying to quantify the risks that banks are dealing with with, with having jailbroken or, or, or rooted or insecure phones coming into their environment. Uh, we're trying to quantify the risk of insecure applications, which can allow data leakage. The biggest and most significant uh, risk right now is, is the cross-channel piece. Uh, so, so how how does mobile change the calculus in dealing with cross-channel fraud? Um, you know, mobile account takeovers, which can lead to uh, account takeovers in the online channel, which can lead to money moving. If the mobile channel is designed in such a way where there's visibility gaps, it can create a major challenge. So, so this is something that we're watching very closely. But, but you know, we're we're not out there banging the drum saying that that mobile is going to dramatically increase fraud losses. Um, we think it we think it has the potential to to dramatically increase fraud risk. Uh, but those losses have not yet manifested. So the smart banks are the ones trying to get ahead of it. Uh, the smart banks are the ones trying to to use the form factor of mobile to do new things, uh, to deploy uh, biometrics, for example, in a much more natural fashion, to allow their customers to to do more with a device which is inherently more secure, specifically speaking about iOS and iPhone, uh, than a PC. Uh, you know, the iPhone is more resistant to malware than than, than any PC. How can a bank leverage that? Uh, as a strength instead of a weakness. So we're in the early days of, of, of really trying to, to backstop mobile and understand the structure of fraud there and really to be realistic and to, and to, and to provide you know, the right sort of guidance as opposed to um, you know, trying to scare customers or scare banks into, into, into over-investing in that environment. Well, Dan, it's a good time to sum up. 
if you were to sort of sum up everything we've discussed here and boil it down to a single piece of advice, what would you tell banking and security leaders about how they can put these survey results to work in their own organizations? What's their agenda? I think that one one kind of closing point here is that I don't interpret increases in certain areas as a lack of preparedness or a lack of readiness. What I see is is a change of, of internal priorities, which happens behind the scenes. The actual fraud managers that run these programs, they don't get credit in a lot of cases for all the stuff that they did a year ago to make their organizations more resistant to attack. Uh, I, I think the, the closing advice that I, would, that I would provide is that, you know, resist the temptation to, to reduce the funding line for anti-fraud programs when fraud decreases. It's certainly something which should be evaluated, but should be evaluated carefully and realistically. Uh, to make sure that, 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 that the reduction of fraud uh, is not a one-time event, but something which can be maintained and, and can be made persistent within an organization. Uh, that's really the mark of a, of a very successful program that's realistic, functional, and, and highly effective. Dan, always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for your time, your insight, and your analysis today. Thanks, Tom. The topic has been the 2014 Faces of Fraud. I've been talking with Daniel Ingvaldson, CTO of Easy Solutions. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.